Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 4 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we explore the mind-bending science of genetic engineering and why it's going to change everything in our lives, whether we want it to or not. We share crazy stories and examples from the cutting edge of science, look at shocking examples from around the world of what is going on with human genetic science, and explore the science of immortality with a few simple life hacks that you can start implementing right away to extend your life and help you live past 100 with our guest, Jamie Metzl. I'm going to tell you why you've been missing out on some incredibly cool stuff if you haven't signed up for our email list yet. All you have to do to sign up is to go to successpodcast.com and sign up right on the homepage. On top of tons of subscriber-only content, exclusive access, and live Q&As with previous guests, monthly giveaways, and much more, I also created an epic free video course just for you. It's called How to Create Time for What Matters Most Even When You're Really Busy. Email subscribers have been raving about this guide. You can get all of that and much more by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage or by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222 on your phone. If you like what I do on Science of Success, my email list is the number one way to engage with me and go deeper on what I discuss on the show, including free guides, actionable takeaways, exclusive content, and much, much more. Sign up for my email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're on the go, if you're on your phone right now, it's even easier. Just text the word SMARTER that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. I can't wait to show you all the exciting things you'll get when you sign up and join the email list. 
In our previous episode, we talked about one of the most important skills in the modern world, the ability to be indistractable. Are you sick and tired of distraction? Do you feel constantly overwhelmed in a world of notifications, demands, messages, and more and more information flying at you? In our previous episode, we discussed exactly how you can battle back from distraction, control your attention, and choose the life you want using the power of being indistractable with our previous guest, Nir Ayal. If you want to banish distraction from your life, listen to that episode. Now for our interview with Jamie. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Jamie Metzel. Jamie is a senior fellow of the Atlantic Council, and in February of 2019, he was appointed to the World Health Organization's Expert Advisory Committee on Developing Global Standards for the Governance and Oversight of Human Genome Editing. He's the author of five books, including the nonfiction work, Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering, and the Future of Humanity. Jamie previously served in the U.S. National Security Council, the State Department, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, as a human rights officer for the United Nations, and much more. Jamie, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks so much, Matt. Thrilled to be here with you. Well, we're really excited to have you on the show today. It's such a fascinating topic, and I can't wait to dig in. I love some of the insights in the book, and I can't wait to share some of these anecdotes with our listeners. To start out, I'd love to kind of open the conversation with one of my all-time favorite quotes, which which really resonates with what the book is about, which is this notion that the future is already here, but it's just not evenly distributed yet. Yep, I totally agree. That's a, obviously a famous quote from one of our, our best-known science fiction writers. And that's what, for me as a futurist, I also write science fiction that's my mission in life is to get people just to open their eyes a little bit wider and to see these radical technological developments that are going to fundamentally transform our lives. And if we can just see what's happening and see what's coming with even a little more clarity, we're all going to make better and smarter decisions about our lives, our businesses that will, that will create better futures, not just for us, but for everybody. And one of the, one of the most interesting claims that you make in the book, and I want to I want to get into all kinds of ideas and thoughts in here, but the book obviously for listeners who who aren't familiar with is about genetic engineering and the future of humanity. And and you open with a fascinating kind of anecdote. I don't know if I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but the idea is that there's a lot of controversy around this topic. And the reality is the where where our hand is going to be forced because in many ways this is an inevitable conclusion. It's going to happen one way or another. And we really, we're coming up on a very short time frame here from a societal standpoint, and we need to start making some really important decisions. That's exactly right. The question is not, should we or shouldn't we embrace genetic technologies? We will. Whether people are for it or, or against it, genetic technologies are going to, in very short order, fundamentally transform our healthcare the way we make babies and the nature of the babies we make. So it's it's not should we or shouldn't we on the science. The question is how, because the decisions that we're going to be need to make in very short order are going to be our our way of infusing our best values, our ethics into the process of guiding how these these incredibly powerful technologies will be deployed. And that's going to be the difference between the positive outcomes that we can all imagine of people living healthier, longer, more robust lives, preventing and, and eliminating and curing terrible diseases, aging more healthily and, and gracefully and living longer, 
and these dystopian outcomes that everybody can imagine. So this, the, it's not a question of whether the, the genetics revolution is, is coming. It obviously is coming, and it's already here. The question for us is, what role do each and all of us want to play in shaping how these technologies are used rather than having other people's decision shape us? You know, here in the United States, we we obviously have a very robust regulatory structure. A lot of this stuff is still very nascent. But in the book, you talk about how other countries may not have the same regulatory structure and may be actually pushing the envelope well beyond what, what we find either morally or ethically kind of kosher in today's world. Yeah, well, Matt, you and I both have a lot of experience with China. And in this world, there are some countries that are really well-regulated. I would say the best-regulated country in the world for, for genetic technologies is the United Kingdom. The, the U.S. is pretty well-regulated, although our entire healthcare system is a total disaster and a mess, and so that creates a lot of complications. There are some countries that have absolutely nothing, uh, and so these are are countries that just don't have any regulatory infrastructure. And a lot of them have very little capacity, but they can become destinations for medical tourism or genetic engineering tourism at some point in the not distant future. And then there are countries in the middle, and China is probably the best example of this, countries that are wealthy, that have a lot of scientific capability, that have decent laws on the books, but where there's a Wild West culture and a mentality, and certainly with China, where there is this national and certainly government-led obsession with catching up, with becoming essentially the world's leading country by 2050, and the Chinese government has identified science and technology leadership as the primary way to get there, and genetics technologies and biotech uh, more generally are among the most important sciences and technologies that they are they are focusing on. And so it's not at all surprising that the world's first genetically engineered babies were born in last year in, in 2018 in China, because China is really pushing the limits of what is possible, including with human genetic engineering. And that's, it's a really, really big deal. I'm on the World Health Organization International Advisory Committee on Human Genome Editing. And we are I'm actually just going next week to Geneva for our meeting. We're meeting repeatedly over the course of this year and next to try to think about and and begin to lay out a, a, a framework for what a global regulatory infrastructure on, on human genetic engineering and genome editing might look like. But that's we're a long way from there. And in the meantime, there are countries like China that are really pushing the limits in ways that would not be possible here in the United States. And even before some of the technology was where it is today, in the book, you share an anecdote of somebody from China who essentially had 10 children in the US. I don't want to spoil it. So I want tell me that story. Share that example with the listeners. It's so interesting. And it shows the mindset too. Well, China, and you know this from your time there, people are very practical in their thinking. Like, what's the best way to do something and they but just because it's a society where essentially the the government has gone to war with with traditional values with traditional moral systems i mean that's essentially what the the great leap forward and the and the cultural revolution were so it's this country it's very it's extremely wealthy 
an extremely powerful country. Individuals are empowered. But unlike other countries, even in that region, like uh, Japan and, and Korea, that still have their traditional value system intact, China, it's like starting over after wiping out its own culture. And they don't have these kind of hangups of as a largely atheist society of, well, God is this genius watchmaker and, and who are we to mess with, with God's work? Then it's like practical. All right. And so this example that in China, there are some restrictions on surrogacy, which California doesn't have. So there was this guy who wanted to have a kid with his wife and they, using IVF, they fertilized 10 eggs. And then the plan was to send 10 to 10 different surrogates in California and then go after these kids are born and look at these kids and pick a couple of them that they wanted to keep and then put the other eight up for adoption. And it's, I mean, it's, it's so mind boggling and frightening that people are thinking about life uh, this way. But for me, the takeaway is we are this incredibly diverse species and whatever we think, whatever value we hold, there's gonna be somebody else who just thinks differently and, and operates by a different value system. And that's what we're going to have to, to navigate. And that's why you know, there's some people, the transhumanists who, who feel like, well, we shouldn't have any regulation, let people do what they want. But we're talking about the future of life and, it ha and, and our decisions, especially using these very powerful technologies, has to be, have to be guided by an ethical system and the use of these technologies has to be regulated. And so this is, this is seriously a global challenge. What happens in a world where for regulatory, moral, political reasons, let's say the United States doesn't really embrace these technologies and a place like China goes all in on them? Yeah, well, I have a chapter in the book called The Arms Race of the Human Race, which explores exactly this. So let's just say that the United States opts out of these technologies first it's going to be hard to do because opting, what opting in means doesn't mean that we're going to, everyone's going to have a designer baby. It also means that our healthcare is going to be worse. We are part of, we are transitioning now from a system of generalized healthcare based on population averages to world of precision medicine and healthcare based on people's individual, individual biologies. And what that means is that everyone's going to have their genome sequenced, and that's how your doctor is going to, in many ways, know who you are so you can get your personalized treatments. Actually, where, where you are, Matt, in Nashville, Vanderbilt is a leader in, in this process. And so that means we're going to have many millions and then billions of people who've had their genome sequenced. We're going to use big data analytics to crack the code of complex biology and genetics. And that's going to really open up a lot of possibilities in our healthcare. So when we say opting out, First question is opting out of what? And we certainly wouldn't want to opt out of, our, of the improvements in our own healthcare system. And then, but once you do that, then our healthcare system moves from being precision to being predictive because we'll have a lot of information about people's genetics that'll tell us something about how their future lives might play out. And then people will be able to use that same understanding of genetics to select embryos when they're using IVF. And then on top of that, we're going to be able to do what has already happened in China, which is use precision gene editing tools 
to edit the genomes of future babies. And again, all these things are, are already happening. So coming back to your question, so what do you do if the, that as this technology develops, as it will, that we recognize, as we will, that we're going to be able to have healthier, longer-lived, maybe higher IQ, maybe taller, maybe more athletic, whatever it is that individuals or even, even uh, countries want, will be doable. And so what happens if a country like the United States decides to opt out at some point? Well, option one is they say, you know, we're opting out. You, whether it's China or somebody else, you're opting in and we'll see how it plays out. I mean, maybe we'll be better off for opting out. Maybe you'll be better off for opting in. And in 20, 30 years, we'll know the answer to this question because if you're right, you'll win all the gold medals in the Olympics. You'll get all the Nobel Prizes in math and we'll be this the country that said, well, we, we made a, an ethical decision, but now there are consequences of that. Or it could be the opposite story. Or you could say that if you, and let's say it's China, if you, China, genetically alter your people, then what happens if your people procreate with our people? So if you wanted to stop that, you could say, all right, well, we're going to make it illegal for people from our country to procreate with people from your country. And you'd have to set up a whole police state system to make sure that you were testing for that, which would be terrible. Or you could say, we're going to try to force you, the other country, to stop doing what you're doing of genetically engineering or enhancing your population. But how is a country like the United States going to do that against a big and powerful and nuclear-armed country like China? And so then we get to this where, where we started, which is, well, if we don't want those kinds of outcomes, how far can we go in building some kind of global regulatory infrastructure it would have to be very permissive, but that could at least try to build some guardrails so that, that, that you know, terrible Nuremberg-style abuses of humans doesn't happen. And that's, a, that's what we're working on in, in Geneva, but it's a really hard task. Such an interesting problem, and and I want to explore. We we've talked already about the inevitability of this because of the global nature of the phenomenon and the science and. I want to start digging into some of the crazy stories, ideas, happenings, things that are taking place both now and are possible in, in a world where this science becomes more ubiquitous. Maybe as a, a starting point, let's dig into a little bit more on a topic you already touched on, which is healthcare. Tell me about, let's, let's assume we, we can put aside the geopolitical and ethical questions for a minute and we may come back to them, but I want to explore what does the world look like in a world with precision medicine or even even predictive medicine that's enabled via some of this genetic science? Yeah. Well, it's great because every time when we go to a doctor for most of the of the conditions that we have, we'll get a symptom and we'll go to our doctor and the doctor will treat us based on our being a human. So for an average human, if you have a headache, a Tylenol for example, will make you feel better. But in this world of generalized medicine based on population averages, the way you find out that if you're the one in whatever the number, 100,000 people who will die from taking that Tylenol is by taking the Tylenol. That's how we have treated cancers and still treat most cancers. If you have as you know, lung cancer or whatever, we have treatments for those big categories of, of things. 
In the world of precision healthcare, your doctor is going to know a lot more about who you are based on your personal history, family history, biometric information, various tests. But the most important piece of information is going to be your sequence genome, which will be the foundation of your electronic health record. And that's how when you go for a, a treatment, your doctor is going to give you something that's tailored for you. Or if in the case of cancer, they're going to sequence, which is starting to happen in about 12% of, of cases now, sequencing your tumor cells so that we, can, that we can target an approach based on exactly the type of cancer that you have. And so that's precision medicine. But when we have, as I mentioned before, these billions of people, and we have their, their genetic, their genotypic information, and their phenotypic information, which means how those genes are expressed over the course of their lives in massive data pools, then we're going to crack the code of complex genetics and we're going to have a lot of probabilistic predictive information about how from birth, essentially, about how your life may play out. And, and part of that will be about risk factors. And so if you know you have an increased risk for developing type 2 diabetes, for example, within from early childhood, you should, your parents should be helping you to have habits of exercise and healthy eating and, and self-monitoring. If you know that you have an increased, your daughter, for example, has an increased risk of breast cancer genetically. So you'll want to start breast cancer screenings maybe when she's 20 rather than when she's 40 which is the norm. So that's going to be, right now, a lot of that information, predictive information, is it's scary to people because nobody wants to be at the hospital taking home their newborn and told that their newborn has a 50% greater than average chance of developing early onset Alzheimer's 40 years from now. I mean, that right now, that scares people. And the medical community is afraid that people are going to freak out because the, the, the doctors tend to believe um, that people can't handle raw information about their futures, which is something I very much disagree with, but that, that's a, a prevailing view in, in the, the medical community. And so, but if this, we, we don't, our, our genome isn't just a healthcare or a disease genome, it's a human genome. And so as we, we uncode, decipher these secrets, we're going to know a lot more about ourselves that has nothing to do with healthcare, about our, our potentials for things like IQ, personality style, being great at specific narrowly defined functions like sprinting or abstract math. And that's going to force us to think differently, not just about healthcare, but about parenting and about life. It's so funny because it's it starts out as such a, a slippery slope and it really quickly develops into a place where people could be making decisions that are almost today seem ridiculous or, or, or out of control, you know, you, you have the example of, I think most people listening to this show right now would say if, if they could figure out that, for example, the example you used that their daughter had an increased risk of breast cancer, they would want to know that because then they can take steps early in life to prevent that and, and hopefully ensure that it doesn't, it doesn't happen or that it's mitigated. What happens when and this is a very quick and easy and, and subtle shift, what happens when that genetic information moves from, let's say, a newborn child to an embryo? Well, it depends. I mean, people are going to have a lot of information about their unimplanted, pre-implanted embryo. And the reason why I've been writing and speaking for many years about the end of procreative sex 
is that we know how the traditional model of sex and, and procreation works. If any of your listeners aren't familiar with that, you can consult the internet. I mean, there are lots of pictures and videos, but we are moving from that world of kind of, it seems simple just because it's so built into our biology of procreation through sex to procreation through science. And the way that we're going to do procreation through science is by taking conception outside of the human body. And we're going to use the tools of in vitro fertilization, IVF. And so women will have their eggs extracted, which happens all the time now, but it will be much more, more common. Those eggs will be fertilized by the, the father's sperm in the lab. And then you'll have a certain, based on the number of eggs and the fertilization process, you'll have a certain number of pre-implanted early stage embryos. And let's just say that it's 10. And so right now, what, what happens when you're selecting which of those uh, 10 to implant in the mother? Generally, it's an embryologist looks at the embryo just to just visually say, well, which one which one looks healthy? And that's kind of an imprecise art, maybe as much as it is a science. And there's a process of pre-implantation genetic testing where you extract a few cells that would have grown into the placenta and you sequence them. And you can tell a lot of information about mostly single gene mutation disorders, things like Tay-Sachs and sickle cell disease and Huntington's disease. And then there's some, you get some information about chromosomal abnormalities like Down syndrome, and that can be done in, in, in various ways and just a few other minor things. But we're, we're moving very, very quickly into a world where we're going to have lots and lots of information that goes well beyond these relatively simple areas that we can understand now. And that's connected to, to just what I described a moment ago about our greater understanding of the genome. So now you are prospective parents and you have these 10 embryos and you have to pick which one gets implanted. One of the options is to say, well, just, I don't want to know. I'm going to put it, you could say in God's hands, but God's hands is an embryologist and a fertility doctor. So somebody is choosing based on some criteria. And maybe it's just random chance. Maybe people will say, I want one that I know isn't going to die young of a terrible, deadly genetic disease. And that seems like a reasonable thing for people to do. But already when you're doing that, I mean, that is in, in many ways, it's a form of eugenics because we are making the decision about which of these 10 embryos will have the potential to become a baby. And there's a lot of, of values that go into that decision. And so we could choose, we could choose issues related to health, related to longevity. And then beyond that, the sky's the limit. Any genetic trait, any trait that's even partly genetic, we will be able to predict, not entirely, but increasingly, the genetic component of that trait and then use that in making decisions. So the science is pretty much already there to rank 10 embryos from likely tallest to likely shortest. Maybe we're a decade away from being able to rank them from likely highest genetic component of IQ to likely lowest, likely most outgoing to least outgoing. I mean, you see where this is, is heading, that all of these attributes that we see as the magic of life are going to be things that we'll never understand completely, but we'll understand more. 
And that's why I always say this isn't a conversation about science. Science brings us to the conversation. This is a conversation about ethics. And you had a great line in the book where you talk about whether or not people in the future or even and really in the immediate term will be asking themselves whether or not you would play Russian roulette with your child's future by not affirmatively selecting for healthy embryos. You know, so right now, if you or your listeners, if you're on the street and you see a little kid and the kid is walking in a way that makes you makes it look pretty likely that this kid has polio or had polio. What do you think? You don't think, wow, that's terrible. Fate has been so unkind to this kid. You think somebody screwed up because polio has been eradicated or mostly eradicated. And that's great. I mean, that's what we would want. Nobody would wish polio on somebody else because, oh, no, that's nature. That's God's will, quote unquote, God's will that your kid should have polio. I mean, those are fighting words. And so we are going to have this ability to make these kinds of decisions. I mean, it's, and it's, but it's very sensitive. I was on a panel in Berkeley a few months ago and with this wonderful poet whose daughter has Down syndrome and, and daughter is just this wonderful person. She has opened up his life and just, it's been, he says, and, and obviously like the greatest gift of his life. And it was hard for me to say that what I believe that in 20 years, seeing a kid with Down syndrome is going to be about as rare as seeing a little kid with polio because it is just going to be not something that kids are born with. And that's already happening in Northern Europe where non-invasive prenatal screening is required and covered by national health plans. And so they're just there are almost no, very, very few kids being born with Down syndrome in, in Scandinavia and Northern Europe. And all this stuff is really sensitive. And so how are people going to feel when they see that kid 20 years from now, that one in a whatever kid who has Down syndrome? Are they going to say, wow, that's so great that that child's parents embraced nature so much. And let's say, let's make it even a more complicated. Let's not call it Down syndrome. Let's call it sickle cell disease or Tay-Sachs or Huntington's or some of these, you know, very, very dangerous, painful, and even deadly diseases. You know, those are going to be seen increasingly as lifestyle choices by the parents. So the parents decided they wanted to do this quote unquote natural thing, even though nothing about our lives is, is really natural when baselined against how our ancestors live. And, and so I think that that's going to feel, it's not just going to be wonderful nature versus scary science. I mean, nature is actually pretty scary. And, you know, nature, people who are having these kids who die of terrible genetic disorders, that's actually pretty scary. And if parents can eliminate or reduce the risk of these kind of deadly, painful genetic disorders for their kids, parents are going to do it. And as you point out in the book, that decision-making process gets us in pretty short order to a place where it could even be considered reckless or dangerous to have children the old-fashioned way. Yeah. So right now, when most of us, certainly I, meet someone who hasn't vaccinated their kids, 
I don't think, oh, that's so wonderful that you were not vaccinating your kids because if, quote unquote, God had wanted us to be vaccinated, we would have been born vaccinated. What I think is you, anti-vaxxer, you are a monster because when you look at the number of humans who have died from infectious diseases over the, the years, I mean, it is in the many hundreds of millions possibly billions. And it's only because we've been so successful in fighting back that people and that other people are, are vaccinating their kids, that people can feel that they don't have to do it. And so it's, it's really difficult because this idea of what is natural is shifting. It shifts within the context of our cultures. And so something that feels natural to people, and even like traditional sexual conception may come to be seen as something that's really dangerous. And, and that's, I feel, this shift that is, is happening, beginning to happen now, but is increasingly going to happen over the coming years. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire, because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. I want to just dip our toe into a couple other themes or topics that, that you write about talking about reproduction and some of the crazy things that might be coming down the pike. Tell me a little bit about the process of creating or synthesizing eggs. And I might be misphrasing the science here, but tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the technical term, which shouldn't scare anybody, is called in vitro gametogenesis. And so basically, 
with just a little bit of background, everybody knows what a stem cell is. So like when your father's sperm fertilizes your mother's egg, how does that one little, your first cell become you in that that cell has the potential to become everything. But as our cells grow over time, they become differentiated. And that's why there's a difference between in our bodies between a skin cell and a blood cell and a heart cell, et cetera. So there's a technology for whom this great Japanese scientist won the 2012 Nobel Prize, Shinya Yamanaka, called it essentially induced stem cells. And so what this does is it allows us to take any adult cell and take it backward in time. And so you take a cell that's differentiated, like a skin cell, and then you, t- you take it back in time so that the skin cell becomes a stem cell. And the reason this is important, it connects to what I was saying a little while ago about the number of eggs that a human woman can create. Male sperm, average male ejaculation has about a billion sperm cells. But average woman having her eggs extracted in IVF has about 15 eggs extracted. And that's a limiting factor, especially if we're doing embryo selection, because if you have, obviously, if you have a bigger number of embryos, you have a greater range of choice. And so using this induced stem cell technology, what the, the approach is, already works in animals, not yet applied to humans, but it will be. You take a skin graft, which is easy to do, and that has many millions of skin cells. You induce those skin cells into stem cells using these four what are called Yamanaka factors, named after this scientist. Then you induce those stem cells into egg precursor cells and egg precursor cells into eggs. Now you have, you started with a billion sperm cells. Now you have, let's just call it, a million eggs. And so you fertilize a million eggs with a billion sperm cells. And now humans, so you have a billion options or a million options, I'm sorry. And let's say you you sort them with a machine and you get down to 100,000 based on whatever criteria. You extract a few using an automated process, extract a few cells from each of those those 100,000 early stage embryos, sequence them. And again, the cost of sequencing has gone down from about a billion dollars in 2003 to about $600 now. And it's going down towards essential negligibility. And then the process of having a baby is where the mother has her, the father gives a, a sperm sample the old fashioned way, the mother has her skin graft taken. And then A couple weeks later, you go to the fertility clinic and you say, here are our priorities. We want a kid. And then you, you, and where, where this is legal and based on your own values and the regulatory environment around, you say, we want a kid that we want to optimize for health, for longevity, for whatever. And it's not like build a bear because when you have to work with the biology that exists, but there's going to be tremendous optionality. And so we are going to be able to push theoretically for now, but actually in the not distant future, we're going to be able to push changes across our population in ways that really would have just been absolutely unimaginable, not just to our our parents and grandparents, but to, to most people today. So interesting. 
And we're jumping around a little bit, but another topic that I found fascinating, and it's almost something that sounds so ridiculous that it that it's going to make complete sense in 15, 20, 30 years, whenever it happens. But tell me a little bit about synthetic wombs. Yeah, so it's funny. I, I talk a lot about synthetic wombs, and I my friends who attack me for it because so just back so synthetic womb so the womb exists in the woman's body it's basically the 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 environment the little micro environment inside a pregnant woman in which the embryo grows so there's a lot of work being done now for creating in creating synthetic wombs which are essentially plastic bags but the nutrients that an embryo needs are being passed through in and out of these synthetic wombs. So already it's starting to be applied experimentally in animal models. And there are some people who are asking whether humans will have babies with synthetic wombs. And if we were to go there, it would really open up this process. It would industrialize the process of human uh, reproduction. And when we think about you know, some of the, of the topics people are, are exploring now, like colonizing Mars. And I mean, we, we may just be in very different environments and we may to reproduce just in different ways than we do now. So a lot of work is happening in synthetic wombs. I'm, for now, I'm a little cautious about the possibility of having human babies born in synthetic wombs, just because I think that there is such a, a complex interaction between the mother, even if it's a, a surrogate or, or the, uh, the, the egg mother, the genetic mother, but certainly between whoever is carrying this embryo inside of their body, there's a lot of interaction that it's not just chemicals, it's sounds, it's emotions. And I think that is, is probably for a while going to be very difficult to replicate not, I mean, I'm sure it'd be possible to, to have it functionally work and have kids be born this way, but I would be really cautious about damage that might be done to these kids by being raised in an environment with just a lot less stimulus than human kids are, are used to. Fascinating. I never considered that perspective, but it, it, just thinking about from a from a safety standpoint alone, it seems like something that could end up being in 50 or 100 years, it could be considered reckless if you don't have a synthetic womb. Why would you jeopardize getting sick or being in an accident or whatever when you could grow somebody in a, in a safe and, and scientifically secure environment? I mean, that, that's one possibility. I'm not close to it, but there's a lot. Like, I think that we, there's a lot in all of biology, including human biology, that we don't fully understand. And that's why, for me, when I think about interventions, Something like embryo selection, where you're, you're, you kind of have to pick one. They're all your natural embryos. And let's just use predictive analytics to try to make our best guess. Like that, I'm, I'm more comfortable doing than something where we are just completely and aggressively transforming a full and complex environment that we don't fully understand. And that's why with artificial wombs, I'm more cautious than other people. And even with genome editing, gene editing, pre-implanted embryos like was done in, in China for the first time last year, there are some people who are saying we're going to be making you know, 1,000, 10,000 gene edits to 
pre-implanted em- human embryos. And I'm, I'm much more cautious. I, I'm, I'm certain we're going to be making edits, but I don't think we're going to be making many thousands just because, again, these are very complex, dynamic environments. And so if we know that there's a single gene that either is creating an outsized harm or, and it could be changed, or if changed, could create an outsized benefit, I think that will be attractive. But changing the whole environment, that's a, a bigger deal. Maybe we'll get there, but that's, that's not a 20-year thing. In my mind, that's a 100-year thing. Fascinating. And, and I want to keep digging in. There's so many interesting anecdotes and stories and, and themes with, throughout the book. Tell me a little bit about what does the science say or, or where do you think things are going to be heading for people like us that are already alive? Are, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about immortality. Is it possible for us to genetically change our age or extend our lifespans? What do we do for the people who are already alive and how is the science going to impact us? Yeah, yeah. So I'm very focused on this because I've already staked my claim that I want to live to 150. And so, and I, I love life. I think everyone should love life. And if we have more healthy life, that's great. And if we can, and you know, our, our parents, our grandparents, if we can extend their healthy lifespans, so rather than if they're going to get dementia, happen at 95 rather than 90, imagine all of the wonders. I mean, just what, what a wonderful contribution to, to life, to all of us, to have more love, more innovation, more ideas, more wisdom. So all those things are great. I think we, we can and we should aspire to them. So a few things we can do. One is we need to be a little bit selfless in the sense that if we want to live longer, we should assume that everybody should have that same right. And, and so there are places here in the United States, I mean, I'm in, in New York City, just you know, a mile away from me, there's a you know, 25-year different average lifespan, uh, and it's based on education level and, and poverty. And certainly globally, there are countries in the developed world where we have 80-year lifespans, and there are places in, in Africa where it's in the late 40s and, and 50s. And so if we want this for ourselves, we should recognize that we should want it for everybody. And we already easily have the technology to help people in poorer parts of our country, disadvantaged parts of our country and the world live longer. And I think that we should really, as our first step, try to do that. In addition, though, if we believe in what we're doing, we should, we should ourselves also live longer, healthier lives. We're not helping anybody by dying young, younger than we, than we can. And so there's a, there's a few different things that, that we can do now. The obvious ones that, every, that all your listeners will know is we should just do all the things that people in the, the blue zones do, which are the places where people on average live, live longer. And that is, I, mean, every, I don't even need to repeat it, but it's exercise, diet, community, reason for being, all those kinds of, of things that every, everybody knows. So, and so everybody, if you're not exercising at least 45 minutes a day, you are just taking from the account of your healthy future health uh, life. If you're eating crap, you are taking from your, your future life. So everybody gets that. But then one of the things that we can do beyond that, so certainly I'm a big believer in intermittent fasting. And the basic philosophy behind that is that our ancestors have survived. That's why we're here 
these very narrow funnels where most other humans died out. The most recent one was about 75,000 years ago. And there were just maybe a thousand Homo sapiens left on the very southern tip of Africa. And so our ancestors were the, were the ones who could survive scarcity. And the way that they did it is that our cells shifted from growth mode to repair mode, kind of like on your computer, shifting to screensaver mode. And so we have that. And so when we have we use uh, calorie restriction in and intermittent fasting, in my mind, is the best way to do it. Our cells shift to repair mode. They go to screensaver mode. And that is just by definition, it, it works to extend our, our health span. But then there are a lot of drugs uh, and small molecules that have been shown to have health span extending effects in animals and human studies are just beginning. So some of them include a metformin, which is a, a type two diabetes drug in, in different names that we humans have been using it since the middle ages. There's rapamycin, which is an immunosuppressant, which has extended animal lives by 25 to, to 30%. There are the various NAD plus boosters. So maybe some of your people have heard of NMN or, or NR. And these are basically your body has a cellular repair mechanism, but it gets worse as you get older. And so this is essentially what these molecules are trying to do is just boost your repair, your natural repair mechanism. So there's a whole set of, of drugs that people are using. I'm very confident that within a decade, many of us will be taking personalized anti-aging drugs, and, and that's great. And then there's a whole thing of the different, there's um, pruning senescent cells, and there's a whole industry, uh, Jeff Bezos is investing in, in that. There's parabiosis, where in animal models, when they've cut open and stitched together an old mouse and a young mouse, in many ways, the old mouse gets younger, the, the young mouse gets older. And so there's something about blood serum that is conferring those youth factors. And so different companies like Alkahest are identifying what those are. And so that's another promising area. And then finally, with everyone getting sequenced, we are beginning to identify what are the genetic patterns that help superagers, people who live past 100, to help them live that long, and then identifying, well, what are those genes doing? And so we can either say, well, what are those genes doing? So genes instruct cells to make proteins. And so we could just short circuit the process by saying, well, what are those proteins being made? And how can we mimic those proteins, perhaps with some kind of, of pill? Or going back to what we talked about a moment ago, now that we know these genetic patterns that increase a person's chances of being able to live a long and healthy life, how can we select embryos after IVF that are more likely than the others to live that kind of, of long and healthy life. So the, this whole field is just exploding and there's a lot of room for progress. And I'm, I'm pretty confident that we're going to keep pushing the edges of, of possibility. There's so many different topics and, and areas and themes I want to keep exploring, but I know we're short on time for listeners who want to concretely implement or start one of the steps or one of the themes or the things that you've talked about today, what would be a piece of homework that you would give them, whether it's around immortality, life extension, or, or even understanding the science better? Yep. So I'll be very specific. Number one, 
get yourself educated. If you want to read my book, I would love for you to read it. It's written. So it's kind of a one-stop shop to tell you what you need to know to to make smarter decisions, but it doesn't have to be, be my book. There's lots of great information out there. So you have to get yourself educated. If you are planning on having a baby at some point in your future life, I encourage everybody to freeze your eggs and freeze your sperm because we're just, we're going to make babies in a different way. And in my view, everybody should just freeze when you're 20. Because when you're 30 or when you're 35 or when you're 40, you want to at least have the option of using your own, your own sperm or, or egg cells that are frozen. It's, a, it's easier for men to do than, than for women, but I certainly encourage everybody to do that. In terms of longevity, absolutely. Like if you, as I said before, if you aren't exercising 45 minutes a day, if you aren't eating healthy food and not eating crap and, and processed junk, you're not helping yourself. Nobody should be smoking because we are, this, this is about building our future possibility. And then finally, what I would say is for their age of, in, just in terms of healthcare and personal management, the science is moving so quickly that very, very few of the doctors understand the newest technology. So your, your doctors, I mean, doctors are wonderful and wise and, and conservative in a, in a positive way, but they don't know, most of them don't know anything about genetics. Most of them are not part of this new, this whole, I mean, they're not edu they're not trained in what's coming in personalized or precision medicine. So you really have to empower yourself through your own knowledge. So we all have to recognize that the world is decentralizing and each individual, we are the agents, the primary agents of change in our lives. But to play that role, we really have to hold ourselves more accountable than in, at an earlier time. And Jamie, for listeners that want to dig in, that want to find you and, and the book and your work online, what is the best place for them to do that? Yeah, two websites. One is my personal website, jamiemetzel.com, J-A-M-I-E-M-E-T-Z-L.com. And then the book website, which is hackingdarwin.com. On the hackingdarwin.com, there's a whole discussion forum where people can share their thoughts. They can debate with each other. What I'm really trying to do is to spark a national and global conversation about the future of human genetic engineering. And because this is about our future as individuals and as a species, we all need to be part of the conversation about where we'd like to go and how we get there. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all these fascinating and sometimes shocking anecdotes and stories. The book is packed full of, of, of really insightful and interesting information. So thank you so much for, for sharing it and, and coming on the show and sharing all this with our listeners. My great pleasure, Matt. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T -T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. 
I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.